Philemon. I know Charlie did because he's told me something interesting that he figured out uh, out of Philemon. And if, I'm not going to uh, steal his thunder. If you want to know what Charlie figured out from Philemon, go talk to him. It's, it's very interesting. I, I hadn't even realized it myself. Uh, so I encourage you to go talk to Charlie afterwards. Uh, he's, got the, he's already got the gold star for filling out his homework. I'm, it's going to be hard to top what he figured out. Uh, in any case, uh, we're still in uh, 1 Timothy, what I believe should be 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. It's actually verse 3. Uh, as I, I've told you before, I think verses 1 and 2 should have been the end of chapter 5, but I'm not going to quibble over that. Uh, so today, what we're going to be seeing, if I were to uh, I throw a title on this, I'm going to call it a portrait of a false teacher. You want to know what a false teacher looks like? Today, we're going to describe what he looks like. Uh, we're going to see Paul show us exactly what false teachers look like so that we can recognize them when we see them. And we're going to see over the next two weeks, basically, that false teachers, although they may appear to have a godliness to them, they really don't have either godliness or contentment. We're going to see what the false teacher looks like today, and we're going to see what the uh, characteristics of a true godliness and true contentment in a real Bible teaching, proper Bible teaching person ought to be. That's next week. But uh, today we're looking at verses 3 down to 5. I'll read it. We'll have a word of prayer. We'll get to looking at it. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 goes like this. If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strives of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. Let's have a word of prayer when we get to look at this. Lord, we do thank you for this beautiful day you've given to us this morning. The flowers are out, the birds are singing, it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous day. You are a wonderful God, you are our creator, and you created this beauty that's all around us. We thank you for it. We thank you for the simple descriptions and the simple commands that you've given through your word. We ask that you'll guide us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Show us how we can recognize false teaching around us. We're surrounded by falsehood. Show us your truth. Your word is truth. It's in your mighty and holy name I pray. Amen. So he starts verse 3 right off by saying, If any man teach otherwise... So Paul here, right off the bat, he seems to be describing, it's a hypothetical situation, if this happens, but he's describing it in a way that it's, this is very, very likely. Yes, it's a hypothetical situation, and we see it all around us, don't we? You hear me say that all the time. That's what Paul's saying here. If any man teach otherwise, and we see it all around us, 
This isn't the only time we've seen Paul use if anyone type language, is it? Uh, let's, let's take another look at, uh, let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'm going to read you 17 and 18. He says, if any man defile the temple of God, hypothetical situation, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seem to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. He's talking about a hypothetical situation, but the truth is we see it all around us. Uh, early in this book, we actually saw it in a positive sense. It's easy to see if any man, blah, 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 and it's usually in a negative way. Earlier, we saw it in chapter 3, verse 1, we saw it in a positive sense. Let's take a look at that. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. So we can see that this may be a hypothetical situation in a good sense, too. Here it's used in a negative sense, usually it is, uh, and it's describing a subversive activity of teaching otherwise. If any man teach otherwise, uh, that's a Greek compound verb, that, that word teach otherwise, it's heterodidascalio. Uh, hetero, we know what that means, something different, didascalio, that's doctrine, some different doctrine. If any man teaches some different doctrine, teaching, if Paul, we've seen Paul all through uh, the book of First Timothy so far talking about this is true doctrine, this is a true saying, this is a true, this is a true. We've said it all over. So if someone's teaching something that is a heterodidascalian, not a true doctrine, then it is what? False doctrine, very good, thank you. I'm glad somebody got that. We had quite a few people got that. That's good. It's really not complicated, is it? By the way, the only other place heterodidascalia is used uh, in the New Testament is chapter 1 and verse 3. Uh, same book. He says, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went to Macedonia, that thou mightst charge some that teach no other negative form of heterodidascalian, no other doctrine. The fact that Paul uses this unusual word, only used in these two spots in all of the New Testament, used twice in the same book, tells me that false teaching was a very major concern to Paul in this church at Ephesus. One other thing about this false teacher that he's describing, if any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. During our prayer time uh, this morning, we were talking about a group of folks not that far from here who are consenting not to wholesome words nor to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's alive and well. It happens all around us. It happens in churches that claim to be Bible-believing churches. This is a very real thing. They consent not to wholesome words, nor to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a false teacher. In this particular instance, Paul isn't referring to any specific statement of Jesus, not one specific thing Jesus said, one of the words that's in red in your Bible, 
but rather he's talking about his, that Paul's own teaching here flows directly out of the teaching and work of Jesus Christ, as hopefully mine does, as hopefully Brother Fisher's does, as hopefully yours does as well. Our teaching, our doctrine, our lifestyle ought to flow directly out of the, what Jesus would say, would do, would act, and minister. Now, as we look down through this verse, we see that this good teaching is, we got a description of it, doctrine which is according to godliness. That's what good teaching looks like. That's what the teaching that follows Jesus Christ looks like. You see, true apostolic teaching is teaching that fits with and leads to godliness. And that's in contrast to false teaching, which has negative impacts, leads away from godliness, as we're going to see in a little bit. Did you know that true teaching is easily recognizable by the impact that it has in somebody's everyday living? If I don't see that impact in your everyday living, then you're not following in true teaching. Plain and simple. If it's not making an impact, a positive impact in your lifestyle, that I can see godliness in your life, then you're not following godly teaching. Now let's back up a little bit and talk about what Paul means when he says that they consent to. They don't consent to. To consent in this verse is a form of the Greek word proserkamai, which we've talked about many, many times. It's a very common word in the New Testament. But this is the only time Paul ever uses it. We talked about proserkamai quite a lot when we were going through 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Uh, John uses it a good deal. Paul, this is the only time Paul ever uses it. It normally means to approach or to arrive somewhere. Uh, sometimes it's used to describe approaching to a deity. And that seems to be the sense that Paul's using it here as well. See, he's afraid that Timothy might have to deal with somebody who's not devoted to the teaching that Timothy is called to preach. See, Timothy's called to preach this, this doctrine that Paul's reinforcing to him, and somebody may not be willing to hear that. And again, we see it all around us. During prayer time, we talk about an example right around here. These wholesome words, they're not consenting to wholesome words. These wholesome words here... Uh, that's also a kind of a common theme in uh, both books of First Timothy, uh, both books of Timothy and the book of Titus as well. These words, these wholesome words, lead directly to godliness, as I just finished mentioning. Uh, see, Paul is just as concerned with a failure to follow the teachings of Christ as well as actively following an ungodly lifestyle. You're either going to follow a godly lifestyle, or you are going to follow an ungodly lifestyle. There's no neutral position in Christianity. We've said that many, many times. There is no neutral. Timothy needs to be aware of anyone who's not completely in line with the teachings that he has learned from Paul, who in turn learned them from Christ, and the same goes for you and me as well. We need to be aware we need to pay attention. 
verse 4, describing this individual. He is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strives of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, and evil surmisings. So verse 3 was the if clause. If someone, blah, 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 blah. Verse 4 is the then. If he is this way, if he is not consenting to uh, doctrines of Christ, godliness, then the rest of this is going to be true. And this verse here is the characterization of this hypothetical false teacher who may very well exist, uh, who has strayed from the teachings of Christ and of Paul and of Timothy and of you and I. And there's many ways that this lifestyle can manifest itself. And Paul uses some very general terms here to show Timothy some things to look out for. There are other aspects. We may see other things. Uh, They may live their lives in a reckless abandon and other things like that. Paul doesn't go into every single... These aren't the only marks. These are just some very general ones. Uh, These are going to help Timothy to recognize a false teacher who should one come along. It's going to help to warn Timothy so that he's not suckered in by some of these false teachings, which are often taught very, very skillfully. False teachers don't come along and say, hey, by the way, I'm going to teach something. It's not the doctrine of Christ. It's something totally different. I'm going to teach you some false teaching today. That's not how false teachers are. They teach it very skillfully. They make it sound true. They make it sound like Christ's teaching. Very few people wander around branded heretic and proclaiming themselves as a heretic. You don't see it often. I'm not going to say that there's not somebody. They're they're probably, in this world, there probably is somebody like that. Uh, But they don't generally advertise themselves as such. They're generally very sneaky in their approach. So first of all, Paul describes them as proud. Now, Back, we, this ought to ring a bell for us as we go, we've been going through First uh, Timothy. Chapter 3 and verse 6, pride was uh, marked as a possible mark of a new convert. Uh, let's go back, First uh, Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6, he says, Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall under the condemnation of the devil. We're talking about qualifications of a leader in the church. Uh, This word pride in the Greek is sometimes used to describe someone who's mentally ill. To describe someone who's mentally ill. This person is not in their right mind. Uh, Either, and it may be for a number of reasons. They're not in their right mind. Uh, It may be due to illness. Yesterday, I wasn't really in my right mind. I came home from working pretty hard outdoors with a buddy of mine. I was so pooped out, I couldn't even think straight. We're talking about somebody who's not in their right mind, and it could be a number of things. It could be uh, illness, could be delusions, I don't know. But he has clouded thinking. Clouded thinking. Paul says that he knows nothing. Literally, that means he understands absolutely nothing. That's a pretty strong charge, isn't it? That's a pretty strong charge. Uh... So instead of actually knowing what he's talking about, this false teacher is 
doting about questions. He doesn't know what he's talking about, but he's doting about questions and strifes of words. Whereof comes envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings. When it says that he's doting about, that's a very interesting, I mean, what in the world does that mean? He's doting about these things. Okay, so he's, he likes questions, he likes strives of words. This doting about actually literally means to have a morbid craving for, a lust after. The word questions here is zetesis, which Paul only uses here and one other time. Oh, we're at two other times, actually. One other time is in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's look at the questions that he talks about there. 2 Timothy 2.23. He says, But foolish and unlearned questions, that's the word, avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. Let's see the other place he uses it is in Titus chapter 3, just next door. Titus 3 and verse 9. He says, but avoid foolish questions, there you go, and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. This word is referring to a question which quickly leads to an argument. The sort of question that quickly leads to an argument. See, this false teacher, he's doting about, he loves, he craves after, he's got a morbid craving for questions that lead to argument. He's got a sick fascination with stirring up disagreements, which can often have to do with the interpretation of a word. This is somebody who enjoys stirring the pot in an ill-informed way. He doesn't really know what he's talking about, but he likes to stir the pot. You know somebody like that? We all do. This kind of behavior leads to a whole series of other problems. Four of them are found right in this verse. We've already read them. It cometh envy, strife, railings, and evil surmisings. The first is envy. Now, this word's only used nine times in the New Testament. Five of them are by Paul. But uh, did you know that doctrinal controversy can lead to envy? Differences of doctrine can lead to envy. And it can come about in several ways. Uh, first of all, the, the good, accurate Bible teachers can be envious of the false teacher's apparent influence in the church. Well, how come that church? He's not even teaching the right thing, but their church is growing and there's people are coming in. There's a certain envy there. Uh, you know, when a new teaching comes along, there's often a, a certain degree of resentment among others who see the attraction to this new following. There might also be a, de a degree of resentment from the false teacher to the people that he's looking to convert to his way of teaching, too. He's trying to lead people in a false way. He may be kind of envious of them, too. That may be why he's well, leading them away. The next issue is strife. And Paul uses this term eight other times. He, sometimes it's translated as dissension. Sometimes it's translated as quarrels. Sometimes it's translated as discord or rivalry. Uh, what are you and I as Christians called to all the time? Many, many times. What's that? 
Yeah, uh, uh, that's, that's closer to what I'm talking about. We're called to unity, aren't we? We're called to unity. We have unity in Christ. We're not called to dissension, to rivalry, and things like that. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3 says that we're to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It's peace that binds us and holds us in this unity. The false teacher, you see, is doing the exact opposite of that. Then it mentions railings. Railings. Uh, that's the plural form of the word. I bet you're going you're gonna to recognize this one right off the bat. Blasphemia. Blasphemia. This is blasphemias. Uh, that's not exactly how it works in Greek. But th- this is more than one blasphemia. It shows up two other times in the New Testament. And it refers to slanderous, abusive, destructive language. Not necessarily just blasphemy against God. Uh, you, you guys guessed that's what, the, what it was going to. I didn't have to say that, did it? Uh, you and I sometimes think of blasphemy as being degrading to the name and the character of God, and it is. But what we're actually talking about here, blasphemia, this language could be any language that's degrading to anyone. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Have you ever said anything that might be degrading to someone? then you've committed blasphemia. See, you and I as Christians hadn't ought to be using degrading language. Ever. Because no matter what a low life that person may be, they're still in the image of God, aren't they? They may be a total derelict low life, but we hadn't ought to be degrading them. Because that's blasphemia. In a sense... You are degrading God in that you're degrading the image of God right in front of you. That puts a different spin on things, doesn't it? Fourth one that's listed is evil surmisings. And that means to think suspiciously of someone. To be suspect of someone. See, Paul's talking about here speculative claims about somebody without any proof. And that's almost always harmful to an individual, isn't it? Anytime we're speculating about somebody, it's almost always in a negative way, isn't it? When you get right down to it. Unless you've got solid proof, we hadn't ought to be having evil surmisings, should we? But he goes on. I mean, verse 4 ends with a comma, so this verse 5 is really the same verse. It's in the same sentence. It says, Perverse disputings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. Here we got the conclusion of what a false teacher really looks like. And the root of it all is that he has a corrupt mind. Men of corrupt minds. That's the real root of the problem right there. See, the real problem with a false teacher is that he has faulty reasoning. It's just exactly like, I can't help but think of this, what Ronald Reagan said the problem is with liberalism. The problem with liberals, according to Ronald Reagan, 
is not that they're stupid. It's not that liberals are stupid. It's that everything they know is wrong. It's the same thing with false teachers. They aren't stupid. They just have the wrong premises. If you've got the wrong premise, you're going to come to the wrong conclusion. You can't help it. No matter how start, smart you are, if you're starting with the wrong premise, you're going to come to the wrong conclusion. I just heard something interesting earlier this week. I was reading a report, and actually Ken Ham talked a little bit about it too. Uh, astrophysicists have found something that contradicts the Big Bang Theory. They found some astrophysical evidence that contradicts the Big Bang Theory. The problem is you've got this premise. Science shouldn't have premises anyway. True science doesn't have premises. You examine evidence and come to a conclusion. No premise. If you just start off your science with a premise that there was a Big Bang Theory, then you get all kinds of convoluted ways you have to make this premise work. You started off with the wrong premise. In the beginning, God created. There's no explanation for where God came from. There's no explanation for any of it. In the beginning, God created. That's the only historical record we have for creation. It's the premise I start with. But I'm a little off topic. Uh, these false teachers can't help but come to the wrong conclusions. They can't help but come to false teaching because they started with wrong premises. They've got a corrupt mind. Now, since the gospel is truth, to deny the gospel is to deny truth, right? It's not that hard. If the gospel is truth, to deny the gospel is to deny the truth. Once you begin to deny the truth, then it starts to snowball. You can't help but come to a whole world of wrong conclusions once you deny the truth, the truth of the gospel. What, what kind of conclusions can you come to? Well, you can. Uh, there's truths in God's Word, basic truths, that God created all mankind, male and female. If you reject God's truth, then you're going to come to all kinds of conclusions on that. You know, I've said it before, uh, if I had a dollar for every gender that there is, I'd have two bucks and a whole bunch of counterfeits. Uh, well, if you deny the truth of the gospel, you're denying that you're going to answer to your Creator one day. Someday you're going to meet your Maker. That's a truth. We all die. You deny the truth that there is a Creator, you've got a bad premise. You've got a bad conclusion you're coming to. That the earth is subject to human, mankind's dominion. Thou shalt have dominion. Over all the earth, God's truth says. You deny that, you start getting into this climate activism and things of that nature. When you deny these truths, you see, you cannot help but come to the wrong conclusions. And that's the root of all the problems that we see in all of society today. That's false teaching. But I'm getting off topic again. See, these false teachers, they start to assume that gain is godliness. And in the church scenario, they start to preach that God's going to give material wealth and well-being if we'll only have enough faith. In the world, we start to see all kinds of uh, worldliness 
gain. That's, that's the ultimate effort that we should be trying to achieve. We see this kind of teaching all around us, don't we? But on a more subtle note, I mean, it, it, we can see the blindingly obvious. Gain is godliness. We all know health and wealth preachers. We can, we can point examples out, and I'm not going to. But there's a more subtle note to it. There's a lot more false teachers who try to manipulate their followers, churches if you will, to fund their own personal financial gain. And these preachers milk the church for their own personal interests. And it's in a much subtler way and you may not even realize that it's going on. You may be in such a church and not realizing what's happening. That's probably more common than health and wealth preachers that we see everywhere. We see them everywhere, but this other more subtle way is probably more common because it's easier to get away with. And this kind of mindset leads to people being destitute of the truth. Destitute of the truth. The truth is literally stolen from them by false teachings. That's what this really means. The de word destitute here is aposterio. Aposterio. It means to cheat someone out of something that's rightfully theirs. It's stolen from them. The truth is stolen from them. That runs contrary to what we saw in chapter 2 and verse 4. Let's back up and read that again because I think this is very important for us to see. Let's back up to verse, chapter 2 and verse 3, actually. We're talking about, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. Be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. These false teachers are robbing people of the opportunity to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that's the real hideous, heinous nature of it all. It's as if the gospel's right in front of them. It's rightfully theirs, and it gets snatched away. It's insidious. So what does Paul say? Paul, Paul says to Timothy that you better stand in the pulpit and you ought to preach against this false teaching, right? You ought to ridicule this false teaching and you ought to take it and shake it right out of the place, right? Isn't that what Paul says to Timothy to do? I'm seeing some head shaking. From such withdraw thyself. You don't stand there and you don't fight false teaching. We, don't, we shouldn't be count, shouting it down from the pulpit here. Withdraw thyself. Don't fight them and don't try to reform them. Just say, okay. It's okay. Because, why? Why would God say, isn't that kind of cowardly to retreat and withdraw? Why does God tell us that we just withdraw yourself from them? You're right. That's right. Kim had something too, I think. You're right. You're both right. 
Because ultimately, you and I can't do anything to change it either, can we? So Kim's right. We're wasting time. If we're doing, trying to do something we can't change anyway, we're wasting our time, we're spinning our wheels. Stop it. Only God can correct them through the conviction of His Holy Spirit. You and I simply ought to pull away or else we might stand the chance of being ensnared by them. We could stand the chance of being, and don't think you're so smart you won't be ensnared by it. Lots of smart people have been ensnared by lots of false teaching. You're not smart enough and I'm not smart enough. Only God through the power of His Holy Spirit and the gospel of His truth can steer people in the right direction. You mind if I close in a word of prayer?